John chapter 4. We are going to be in verses 43 through 54. That is our goal for the day, uh, to try to finish up John chapter 4. There's a number of things that have been going on in the Gospel of John, and a number of them will come to a head here uh, as we continue into this narrative that is written to a generation of people that no longer see Jesus walking around doing miracles. That's an important context to keep in mind. As you go through the history that John is discussing here, he's not just giving us a narrative account of events. He is proposing an argument that Jesus of Nazareth is the one worthy of your trust and that when you trust in him, you will have life in his name. He is not writing history. In fact, there's no way to write history or even current events for that matter without a bias. He's writing to affect you, the reader. And so every time you come to a story, you must understand every aspect of the narrative is there to affect you towards the end. It's there to convince you that this is someone worth trusting in, that believing on the Lord Jesus Christ not only makes difference in your life, but he being the crux of all of Revelation's history and the center of life himself means that as we hear about his ministry and as we hear about the signs that he works, John is appealing to us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, not based on what signs you and I have seen. It's very easy for us to say, you know, it would actually probably be a stronger Christian life if I actually saw a miracle. Don't you feel that way sometimes? If I just need one, right? We just need, if I could see something happen that I could claim without doubt was an absolute miracle of God that was clear in front of my face. And I'm not talking about those ones that all sorts of religions in the world claim the ones that are untraceable and unconfirmable. No, I'm talking about a man who's paralyzed with atrophied legs, all of a sudden has muscles, can stand, balance, and run. Do you think your faith would be strengthened to see that? Kind of a hard question, isn't it? Because if, if faith can have its origin in that and be very strong, then we're missing something from our life, aren't we? We don't see that. There's no normative practice actually anywhere in biblical history where miracles are the norm. They're always the exception, always. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, even during the ministry of Jesus Christ. Notice, for instance, when he goes to Samaria, he does no miracles. He just speaks. But then he goes to Chorazin, and he goes to Capernaum, and he does all sorts of signs and wonders there, and nobody believes. And he calls down condemnation on them. Why? Faith is not a matter of what you see with the eyes. Faith is a gift of God. Our faith, brothers and sisters, began with the word of God. You and I do not have the reality of miracles happening in front of us. Jesus of Nazareth is not still walking around the world healing people and giving them sight to the blind and, and healing the deaf. That's not happening everywhere. That's not what the gospel is based on. 
That was part of Jesus' ministry and a little bit part of the apostles' ministry. But the normative reality for almost every Christian throughout history has been God speaks and we believe. And John is writing to a group of people that do not know the miracles of Jesus well after Jesus has ascended and actually at the very tail end of the apostolic age where almost all miracles have stopped. Which means when John is writing to them, appealing to them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not saying, hey, here's some tricks you can do to cast out a demon. Here's some incantations you can do to give walking ability to a lame person or speaking to a mute or eyesight to a blind person. He's not doing that. You notice there's no instructions in scripture for such a thing. However, he does give you the words of Christ. Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. There was a time in my life, all the way up to just four seconds ago, where I would prefer to see a miracle with my own two eyes. Because there's part of me that thinks that my faith would be stronger as a result. But what we know from Scripture is that's not the case. It is not that faith comes from seeing. It is that faith comes from hearing. And that's not just a semantic difference. That's a really important difference. Because for 2,000 years of the church's history, faith must come from hearing because you and I cannot see what happened there. We have to go on the testimony of the apostles. We have to go on the message faithfully delivered from those who came before us. And then we must pass on the message as well. God did not leave us a video of all of these things. He left us words, descriptions, arguments, the gospel, the descriptions of Christ and his glory, and all of these things affect us quite deeply. John here gives these, the summation to these past two chapters in today's passage in such a way that shows us that signs and desiring miracles and even recognizing the background of miracles is not enough for faith. I want you to see it. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God and his word. John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. This comes in context right after he stays a few days in Samaria and a whole bunch of people that shouldn't believe in him believe in him. Verse 43, after the two days, he departed again for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, same place as the wedding, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs, now this is plural you, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. 
As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for this passage. We know that what it took for you to inspire this and what it took for you to preserve this are things that are far beyond our control. We thank you that you've done these things. Father, there's a further miracle that must be done. You must illumine the desires of our heart to love your word. That is our soul's desire here as we read it. May we love the message of your scriptures. May they not just be an add-on to our lives, may they be our lives' direction. May they direct our heart to have desires that are in keeping with your gospel and your message of salvation to this world. We pray, Father, that you would enlighten our minds as well, that we may understand these things that we are to love. In your Son's name, amen. You may be seated. If you've been paying attention, you know for the past two chapters in John, we've been dealing with two different people. Nicodemus, what I call the tragedy of Nicodemus, a man who belonged to the Sanhedrin, was a ruler in Jerusalem, had the law, taught the law, was a member of the Pharisees, had everything going for him and the best that he could come up with. We have seen your signs and we know that that must be you're from God. And that was as far as Nicodemus got. And as Jesus addresses him, he speaks to him like, that's not how one is born again. You cannot just recognize where signs must come from. I think this is one of the tragedies of our own culture as well. Some of you are probably aware that back in the 90s, there was what was called the Jesus Seminar. How many of you have heard of this? Okay, Jesus Seminar was this desire to establish who was the real historical Jesus, as though we didn't know. And all sorts of people, Christian and secular alike, poured over every historical document, every reference, everything that we had, and came up with the end-all conclusion that the scriptures faithfully put forward who Jesus of Nazareth truly is, historically speaking. Which means, just from a secular historical standpoint, They proved that Jesus of Nazareth not only was a real person, but he did what he claimed, and there's no reason to ever doubt that. Did that lead to salvation? No. Because information is not the problem. And this is what the gospel has said over and over and over again. There were people standing there watching Jesus do miracles that did not believe in him. It must be grasped how deep unbelief is in the heart of man. It does not matter if a miracle is done in front of them. My friends, it doesn't matter if they knew that he rose from the dead. They will still tell people that his disciples stole his body when they themselves knew that he rose from the dead. It does not matter how many miracles, how many proofs, or how many things you do to convince people of the truths of Scripture. It will never, ever be enough. May I say, same for us. Faith does not come by us verifying facts. Faith comes by the hearing of God's supernatural word. 
And if it will not come from there, my friends, it will not come. It is the only source that God has ever promised to do these things in our hearts. When we say, Father, increase our faith, which is a marvelous prayer, by the way, I encourage you to wrap into your daily prayers. Increase my faith. Expect that God will do that through his word. Not just as you go about your day, about the normal things that you do. Faith is increased by exposure to the word of God. It is why you are not seeing me up here giving you essentially a Christian version of a TED Talk trying to make you run your life a little bit better. That's not how faith works. That would assume I'm God, that I can dole out faith by my smooth words. No, it is scripture that increases our faith. It is exposure to the word of God that increases our faith. <clears throat> we see this with Nicodemus, where Jesus expresses to him that unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born of water and spirit. We talked all about these things. It is not enough, Nicodemus, that you saw the signs and you've been able to express that I am from God. Not enough. Notice for Nicodemus, it did not lead to saving faith at all. What a tragedy not at least until a few years later. But then we're introduced to the woman from Samaria, a woman who in front of her, Jesus did not do any miracles or signs, but simply spoke. What was the result for her? Her, not a ruler in Jerusalem, not a member of the Sanhedrin, not a member of the Pharisees, not one outwardly that anyone would see as religious, not on the outside as anyone would see as even moral. What was the outcome of Jesus speaking to her? She knew not only that he was from God, but that he was the Messiah. That he had in himself the information of where and how someone was to worship God Almighty. She was able to perceive that he's not only from God, he is a prophet. He is indeed actually the Messiah. What was her natural response? Go back home and tell everybody. And what was the result? Jesus came to town for two days and many, many, many of the Samaritans in Sychar believed, not because only of what the woman had said, and John is focused on the words one after another, not only because of what we said, but now because they hear with their own ears from Jesus straightforward. And he says, that is now why we believe. Look at verse 42, and this is the run into today's passage. <clears throat> they said to the woman, this is all the people in Sychar, the many more that believe because of his word. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. We commented last time on how severe a recognition and admission that is. It means that them as Samaritans had to submit to the reality that salvation is of the Jews, that they have been worshiping on the wrong mountain for centuries, that their entire culture has been separated out from the law of God as properly given, that the amount of scripture they had was incorrect. They only held to the first five books. But that all the prophets that came from Israel were indeed right, that there is a Messiah coming who will save the entire world. They set aside all of that 
because they heard and believed the words of Jesus Christ. It is very hard to set aside personal identities for the sake of Christ. It is very hard to not imagine that Christ is here to bolster our identities, whether where we are from, what we already hold to, or what things we already think. Christ is not here to bolster these things. He's here to make us more like him, which for the stuff of this earth will fade slowly. Watch what happens then with the next man. Here's where we start today. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet was has no honor in his own hometown. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, we know that there's not just seven sign wonders that Jesus had done during his ministry. That's a literary device that John is using. When he says, here's the first sign he did, here's the second sign he did, that has a point all its own. I'll make that clearer later on. What we also know is that he did many other signs in Jerusalem when he was there. And as even John here is expressing, there's a lot of people from Galilee that were in Jerusalem that saw some of these miracles. They weren't listening. They weren't actually getting the message. They weren't coming to salvation and faith on Christ. They were simply seeing the miracles. What a marvelous thing to see, isn't it? What a distracting thing. And that really becomes the point. When he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, and here he speaks to the official, but uses the plural to refer to everyone that's standing around him. Unless you see signs. Unless you see wonders, you will not believe. That is a criticism and it is a warning. If one will not believe the words of Jesus, one will not believe even if someone is raised from the dead. If one will not believe the words of Scripture, one will not believe even if a miracle is worked in front of their face. In in our culture and in our kind of way of knowing things where we are, we don't really think that way, do we? We think on the basis of personal validation. I need to go out and make valid every single claim that somebody makes. I won't believe it unless I see it. I won't believe it unless I... Sounds like somebody, doesn't it? Sounds like one of the disciples here later in the book of John, doesn't it? You say he's raised from the dead. All of you said you've seen this. I'll never believe it unless I see it and touch it. That's our culture. We want to see and we want to touch Jesus. We want to actually see it for our own two eyes. Forget, the, forget just the text of Scripture. Forget what God has actually given us. We want to verify it because we trust our eyes more than we trust his words. Sounds like a dangerous path. It is a dangerous path. Because it's an unfulfilling path. Because ultimately, at the end, it just becomes about what we have seen. And not about what God has said. 
This is one of the issues that was with Nicodemus. A teacher of the law cares more about what he can perceive rather than what God has promised. But with the woman from Sychar, the Samaritan woman, she's not looking for signs and wonders. She doesn't go, wait, you're the Messiah, do a trick. Show me, let me verify that. No, she goes with the claims that he makes and the words that he says. So does the entire town. But those who were from Galilee had been down into Jerusalem for the feast and had seen him do all these signs and wonders. And so they welcomed him. But to what end? To do more signs and wonders. So that they could base their faith on the things that Jesus was doing rather than the things that he was telling them. It seems like it would lead to strong faith, but in reality, it does not lead to faith in any sense at all. This is one of the reasons why God has specifically blessed us not to base our faith on miracles. In fact, as Jesus is speaking to Thomas a week after the resurrection, he says, Thomas, you believe because you have seen. Let me paraphrase a bit there is a special blessing for those who believe and have never seen. It is a blessing to not see miracles. It is a blessing that God has bestowed upon his church to simply see and understand his word and to have our faith based in the words that he gives to us rather than the things that our eyes can see. It doesn't mean that none of these people will believe. Some of them will, but there is a weaker faith with regards to signs and wonders. Why? Because you need to keep coming back for more. That's the aspect about faith, isn't it? It always needs to go back to its foundations. And if it's the word of God, my friends, it's why weekly we're back in it. And daily, as individuals, we're in it. Because we need to keep returning to the foundations of our faith so our faith may be strengthened. But if our faith is based only on the exceptional things, miracles, signs, and wonders, what will become of us when signs and wonders are not normative? We will seek for a base, we will seek for a foundation, and we will find it lacking. This is what happens. This is what happens as Jesus expresses in the parable of the soils. There are those who hear the word and it does nothing. It bounces off them just like the rocky road. There are those who hear the word of God and quickly sprout up because they're in the rocky soil. But they're choked out when anything happens. Why? Because their faith had no depth to it. Their heart was filled with other things. It didn't have room for the word of God. Their own perception, their own desires, their own identities choked it out. What about for the other soils? The thorny soil, where the cares of this world, legitimate cares, family, culture, jobs, these things edged out any meaningful faith. There's only one of those that came to salvation, and that was the good soil that bore fruit with patience. Because the reality is the fruit of the faithful life takes decades. It is not instantaneous. Signs and wonders and a faith based on them is instantaneous and it vanishes away. This is why Jesus constantly warns them. It is not about the signs and the wonders. This generation always seeks signs and wonders. And here's the thing. Could Jesus have done innumerable signs and wonders? Absolutely. 
But there's many times he came to the people and he specifically reserved for them. He says, I will give you no more signs, no more wonders, just one more. The sign of Jonah. Anyone remember what that was? The sign of Jonah was a man who had been killed in that situation by a fish. A man who had been in the grave and come back again and calls everyone to repentance. The great sign that Jesus worked in his resurrection. I say all this because it helps us understand this second sign. Because John, in picking out different signs and in different miracles that Jesus had done, chose seven specific ones. One, the changing of the water to wine in Cana. The next sign here, also in Cana, as Jesus comes back, after all the Galileans had seen the things he did in Jerusalem, They come back and they welcome him, but they welcome him out of a childishness, not a childlike faith, a childishness. We want more signs. We want more wonders. Now, this official, it does not say that he went down to Jerusalem and he had seen these things. He just knew by the testimony of others that Jesus was able to heal him. I understand. There's nothing you wouldn't do for your kid. But as as Jesus is referring to this situation, as John is writing to us about it, he expects us to keep in mind Nicodemus. He expects us to keep in mind the woman from Sychar, and he expects us to see this man in light of them both, because he's kind of a mixture of them. And he doesn't understand that it's just the word of Christ that is necessary Jesus himself doesn't actually need to be present for the miracle to work. What a lesson. And it's why John includes this one. Because while he is doing a sign or a wonder, the first one, if you remember, the first sign came without a word from Jesus. He just told them to take the water to the master of the ceremonies. He doesn't actually go up to it and go, turn to wine. Doesn't even say he touched it doesn't say he said anything. But now we get something more. He's not just present for that miracle. Now for this one, he's not even in the same town yet. This official had traveled all this way so that he could ask Jesus, please heal my son. And Jesus uses that opportunity to speak to the crowd and say, the only thing you're all looking for is this stuff. I'm not even going to go to his house so that you can understand that the strength of these things is based in my words, not in my tricks, not in my miracles, not in my signs and wonders. And so how does Jesus heal his son? He tells the man, go, your son will live. And then we have the narrative that explains, yes, at the seventh hour this had happened and he understands it was When Jesus spoke those words, his son in a different town was healed. John is not just randomly picking a miracle to prove who Jesus is. He is teaching us about the power of what Jesus is saying. You would prefer miracles? Hear the words of Christ. You want your faith increased? Hear the word of God. 
This is one of the reasons I love the Gospels and one of the reasons why I have spent 10 years waiting to preach on the Gospel of John because it is complicated, but the way he does it is in narrative form, the same thing that we have elsewhere in Scripture, where it is argued in straight-up form. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. That's a much easier way to talk about things. Here, we see it played out. It is easy for us to think that our faith would be bolstered by living at this time, and yet Jesus constantly warns us. The same thing is true of us as was of any of our ancestors. We are hard-headed. And without God intervening with supernatural faith gifted to depraved hearts, it does not matter if you saw a fire tornado on top of the tabernacle as God sent down handwritten in stone laws, you would still forget your God. And so would I. Faith is not merely being convinced by something that's irrefutable. Faith is not being convinced of something. Faith is a devotion to something. Faith is a commitment, an entrusting, a reliance upon something. We rest in Christ, not because you and I can verify his words with miracles, but because his words have come to us through his apostles And now we see it and read it and hear it for ourselves. And is not that how the Christian life works? It is not a matter of us just simply living on our own, trying to figure out all of these things. Nor is it simply a matter of us running into Scripture and understanding it for ourselves. Scripture is not made to be understood by yourself. That's not how it works. Scripture is made to be read and understood and celebrated amongst the Fellowship of like-minded Christians. And look at what things this man is reminded of. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Second half of verse 50. The man believed what? Well, he hadn't seen the miracle yet. He was gifted to hear the word first and witness the miracle second. That is a gift. Because as he looks back, he gets to realize that he believed when there was no verification, there was no testimony that it had been accomplished. He put everything on Jesus' single statement. Go, your son will live. What is the man to do? No, 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 no. You need to come with me because if it didn't actually happen, I'm going to have to trace you down again. I'm not going to stop at anything for my son. I'm going to make sure that he's going to live. He doesn't say that. Go, your son will live. And John makes specific reference. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. End of miracle. Completely unverified, unchecked, dangerous thing for a man to do, isn't it? If it was anyone else whose word he was listening to, that is a reckless response. Friends, the same thing applies to us. If we apply 
that kind of level of trust to anything that any human has ever written, it would be foolish and reckless of us. Only the word of God is owed that level of trust where you would even put your own son on the line. That is really the essence of faith, isn't it? It is based not on how much I trust. It is based on the claim and the person that's making such a claim. If I was standing there that day and I just said the same thing to that official and I said, you know, don't bother Jesus with this. Just go. Your son will get better. Should he trust my word? The question would quickly come back. Who, who am I? Who am I that I could make such a promise? I'm sure as you've dealt with different sicknesses in your life or you've dealt with family members who are falling ill, that you'll hear these things said to you. Most of you know my mom is dealing with a pretty significant sickness right now. She was approached by someone who told her a specific way of healing herself and all would be well. True hope or false hope? She could just listen to some songs, say a couple of prayers, and take communion in a special way, and everything will go well. False hope. That's not the word of God. Do you know why? The word of God has already been given. And it has not promised such things. It has not promised us these things. But the amount of people that come out and promise their own things, false teachers we call them, are plenty And it is not far from any one of us to attract ourselves to those things if we are not filling our minds with what God has said rather than what people say. We do not base our hopes, we do not base our faith on fleeting hopes. We base our hopes and our trust in the claims of the word of God whether the world ends or not, no matter the outcome. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. What a significant recovery it must have been for them to go like, you know what? You don't even need to bother Jesus anymore. He just completely turned around. Just go ahead and come on home. What, a, what an obvious recovery at a time if thermometers didn't exist. They knew that the fever left. They knew that he was well, so much so that they actually went to travel to the other town to tell the official to come back home. You don't need a miracle anymore. And so the official, knowing that it wasn't a natural course of events, inquires out of curiosity. And let me say, this guy, I understand. Hang on a second. What hour did that happen? Well, the seventh hour, of course. The seventh hour is when it happens. That's about one o'clock right after lunch. Seventh hour is when it happens, and he goes, I knew it. Jesus healed him straight away with a word from a different town. There is a little piece of me that wishes that was normal in the church. Isn't there in you? Wishes when somebody is taken over by a certain sickness that the ultimate health that will be normative in the new heavens and new earth would be normative here. We would prefer that, wouldn't we? We'd prefer that there wouldn't be, we just, um, we're going to, did we just sing about it? All the rehearsals are jumbling in my head. Did we just sing about it or are we about to? 
that uh, there's coming a day when no sorrow and no sickness. We did sing about that already. Great. <laughs> Someone asked me before service to remind them of something after service, and I just laughed at them. I was like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> my brain doesn't work like that. As you just learned, my brain is on a single track, and I just derailed it. Hang on a second. Someday I'll be able to have multiple tracks. Just hang on, got to get back on. <laughs> yeah. So he comes back home. This guy I understand. This guy I understand. I want to figure out, is my faith that had already been exercised, basing itself only on the word of Christ, but not on anything I could verify, it is bolstered on some level by verifying certain things. This is one of the things I do love about this guy because, one, it gives us that miracles and wonders are not the basis of our faith, but they do encourage it. That is the answer to my first question, by the way. Do you think that our faith would be bolstered by seeing miracles? The simple answer is yes, but not if you do not already believe. It's a very important distinction because this man believed the word that Jesus had said and the miracle bolstered his faith further, not only just his, but his entire household. Why? Not because someone was healed, but because he came home and told his family. Do you see what John is doing? Hear the word, faithfully preached, even if it's secondhand, thirdhand, those things are coming to them. The question is, is it faithful to what happened or not? This is one of the things that I absolutely am floored by the reality of the gospel is that it is translatable from culture to culture and language to language. You don't have to be very grateful for this. You do not have to learn Hebrew and Greek in order to know the gospel. You don't. It's translatable. You do not have to study that kind of stuff in order to know the claims of these things. And once that word has come to us, we get to glory in it. Not just because we see the changes it makes in our lives. Don't base your faith on that. Your perception of your own life is fleeting. Sometimes that foundation will be ripped away from you when suffering comes. Don't base your faith on it. But do let your lives in Christ bolster the faith that is already in you. Because the reality is that the change God works in us is on the same level miraculous as saving this boy from his own death. I say miraculous because it is not natural. And it breaks the natural order for Christians to actually get along with one another and love one another out of unity based in humility. Those things aren't natural to us. What is natural to us is to only surround ourselves with people that like us or agree with us. It is unbecoming of a Christian to base ourselves in that. There's nothing wrong with being bolstered by those who you like and like you. There are friendships inside the church. Don't get me wrong. But that cannot be the basis of fellowship. It cannot be the center of who we are. And it cannot be just something that is the base of our faith and of our encouragement, nor of our church. We are different people, if you haven't realized that. We've got a lot of different ideas and a lot of different ideals. That's just fine. That's just fine. 
as this man is learning. Verse 53, the father knew that uh, that was the hour, meaning the seventh hour was when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, all of his household believed. And this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. I titled this sermon, Signs and Beliefs. Signs and Belief. When we do see the miracle of heaven and earth becoming one, our faith will be perfected. Because what was once faith and entrusted because God claimed it will then become sight in that order. It must be in that order. Christian, is you face your own mortality, you will see how faith must fill your mind because you will have to experience something that nobody living can tell you about. What is death like? What will it feel like? What will it be like? The scriptures tell us very precious little on these things. But it is one of those things where the Bible tells us that we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That we know that if we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. And that is where our knowledge of such things ends. What God has said to us is very limited. The reason I bring that up is because it's one of those things that no matter what culture you're in, no matter what age of the church you live in, death is the ever-present, we cannot see the other side. We must simply trust God's care of us. Our faith indeed would be bolstered by miracles. And so then the question comes, where are the miracles happening today? We look for them in healings, but healings on the level of what Jesus was doing are not happening. You do not have paralyzed people just all of a sudden walking. I don't care what televangelists lied about. You do not have things that are verifiably not there. A man with a withered hand that has never worked all of a sudden being fully restored. You do not have completely atrophied muscles all of a sudden gaining strength. It doesn't work like that in this age. It has never been the norm. So the question is, where are the miracles happening in the church so that they may bolster our faith? I just heard it. Changed lives. A love of God's word. A love of his people. Do you know that the scriptures talk about this age and the things that we get to experience in that and say the prophets of old, this is in 1 Peter 1 if you want to read it, the prophets of old longed to see what we see. They lived at a time where the Holy Spirit wasn't living in them, where they would fellowship only on the basis of what things they held in common. That's why Israel was just ethnically Israel. They didn't have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in them to still fellowship in the midst of our differences. That is a miracle they never experienced. We think it commonplace. We think it a low miracle. 
I think it's one of the greatest miracles that's ever happened. There is a single church worldwide. Not only just in our time, but through history. Filled with the failures that you and I would have done if we lived at those times. But also we see the light of the gospel going out and going forth. And look at this. We are standing on a continent the ancient world didn't even know about. Here, preaching a gospel at the ends of the earth. The promise of God has continued to trek through history. And he's gathered us up for the ride. I said at the beginning, it's a lovely thing to join a church on an adventure. Quite a wonderful gift to join a church that's already in the midst of an adventure. The reality is all of us who have come to Christ have joined the singular church that is on an amazing adventure. And the end where we are going is a place where out of every tribe, nation, tongue, and people, Christ has purchased for himself a singular people, ransomed to God the Father, filled with the Holy Spirit, and given the promises of a world without sin. Someday our fellowship will not have sin. Someday our relationships will continue on for eternity without death. Someday there will be no sicknesses and nothing that tears each other from one another. But that is not this day. Do not mistake what world we currently live in. Miracles are the exception, always have been. One day, there won't even be need of miracles. Let's pray. God, give us strength until that day comes. We pray the same thing for us that your apostle John prayed for the churches in Asia Minor. That when suffering comes our way and when difficult times enwrapped our lives. You teach us to endure until the end that we may be saved. Father, we pray the same thing for our hearts. We pray the same thing for each other. That you would find us faithful. Whether that means we're popular or not is so not a part of it. Whether that means we are enjoying things or not is really still not a part of it. But Father, whether in sorrow or in sickness or whether in joy or in health, we pray that you find us a faithful people, glorying in you and the kingdom to come and preaching a gospel to this dying world to say that there is life in Christ's name. Believe on him and live. We pray, Father, that this church ever be a beacon of that gospel light no matter what the days look like. We pray this, Father, in your Son's name, for his sake. Amen.